You're listening to the Tigger Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Here's your host, Jeff Cassette. Hi, everybody. Who decides? Who decides what movie to watch? Or what a piece of art is worth? Or what work is worth? Or who gets the COVID vaccine? Who decides who our leaders should be? These sorts of questions do keep coming up. I think the answer is obvious. It's me. I should decide. Basically everything. Things would be so much better. Socially just, environmentally sustainable society for starters. Alas, even in this time of crisis, I am unlikely to seize power. So who? Who is going to engineer a better world? Governments? Regulators? My guest today thinks not so much. Brian Matt is director and head of ESG Americas for information purveyor IHS Market. He says governments just don't have the wherewithal to tackle issues like global warming. Instead, Matt says capital markets will be, even already are, the driving force for change. Now, whether global capital markets can really capture the expectations of society is one question. Less in question, however, is that capital markets are fast reshaping themselves to meet new sorts of investor expectations. Matt says ESG and sustainable finance are COVID-supercharged megatrends, and they'll radically shift how companies are valued, how boards operate, and how corporate communication and engagement will be conducted in the years to come. On this Ticker Podcast, Brian Matt on the acceleration of ESG through a crisis. Brian, uh, in a recent IHS market research paper, uh, you argue that any sustainable green recovery can only happen with an acceleration of ESG. Uh, one where you think that uh, capital markets, um, presumably as representatives of society, will be the driving force. Uh, is that the correct thesis? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a good summary of it. Um, I'd say internally at IHS Market, uh, we have uh, a number of different business lines, uh, uh, experts that focus on different uh, customer, different client types uh, within the, the technology space, within transportation, within uh, healthcare, and then uh, more generally out into the financial markets. And I think uh, uh, really after conversations with that group, um, that's what we came up with just from each of them talking to their various constituencies was uh, that uh, really capital markets uh, stands to really drive any type of uh, sustainable recovery uh, out into the market, uh, just given that uh, there are both public and private funding sources uh, that are increasingly looking at uh, um, companies and investments and, and, and where we head in the near future with an ESG lens. Um, I think there's a lot of ways that manifests into different uh, businesses, different companies, but uh, uh, in the end, uh, uh, both um, from public uh, financing, from uh, some of the uh, EU green recovery uh, proposals 
proposals, uh, as well as from a private financing aspect. Um, that's really where uh, investment is driving and uh, all of the rebuild that we see uh, as we start to put the economies of the world back together uh, is going to have that lens uh, applied to it. Yeah, and obviously it's no secret, tons of money is uh, going into so-called ESG funds. Um, and this question of greenwashing, of course, we can get into that. But I, I'm sorry, I just, I want to back up. Um, before we started recording, you mentioned Milton Friedman. And I want to know, like, why was he wrong? Uh, why doesn't he work now? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, it just happened to be the 50th anniversary of the uh, shareholder primacy statement. So uh, we've discussed this a few times. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Milton Freeman's system uh, that uh, that was built around uh, treating one stakeholder uh, as primary over other stakeholders um, maybe just doesn't operate well in the type of communications and transparency environment um, that you need to have today. Uh, it, it's very difficult for any company to make uh, decisions that benefit one stakeholder uh, but hurt other stakeholders in a public sense. Um, it's just not as easy to do as the world has become much more transparent. Um, you really do, as a, as a large company, need to identify who are all those potential stakeholders, uh, the ones you speak to every day today as suppliers, customers, employees, um, but also then uh, communities, uh, regulators, uh, uh, you know, society as a whole. Um, all of those that uh, uh, that may not have an immediate voice, but uh, the the work that you do has an impact on. Um, you start to see some of the impact of poor decisions to uh, value one stakeholder over another in the news every day. <laughs> you can almost take uh, you know the the, uh, the each section of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal each week and and get back to decisions to uh, to to choose one stakeholder over another. Uh, I think most management teams have gotten a lot smarter about that over time, and boards are now starting to step in with uh, really the requirement to make sure that all stakeholders are treated effectively uh, uh, in the process of building a business. True, true. Uh, yeah. But, but you're actually kind of ar- almost arguing for a new deal, right, between Wall Street and, and, and society, essentially. And and I don't know, you're hoping that, that, that Wall Street, which to date, I don't know, doesn't seem to be reflect society's wishes or necessarily, uh, or, or, you know, well, let's, let's step back to, um, asset owners, uh, then, uh, and their relationship to asset managers, uh, asset owners, um, you and I have our own individual, uh, accounts. We may own mutual funds, ETFs, et cetera. Um, we may have, uh, you know, a pension fund. Uh, if you work for a company that, uh, that offers a defined benefit pension plan, um, there are increasingly more options for us as individuals or as uh, institutions uh, to express our values through investment. Um, you know, you saw BlackRock launch a whole series of new portfolios this year, uh, just back in January, along, uh, alongside Larry Fink's um, uh, release. That uh, you know, again, uh, tries to meet all of those possible goals. You see uh, a set of uh, impact portfolios that are being launched by some of the large asset managers um, that are expressly designed for you to ex- to find your values and be able to express them through your investments. Uh, the point is that uh, the, the capital markets become a uh, almost an evaluation process and an allocation of capital towards those values um, from uh, from asset owners. In the end, um, you'll see you know, in some cases regulators are making that process easier in Europe, uh, offering trying to encourage companies to offer more investment products uh, that allow you to express those values. 
I don't see that declining or reversing itself at any point in time. Uh, there are going to be more options for uh, individuals to express their values through investment. Um, the the companies seeking to raise capital or seeking to uh, to trade on secondary markets with their existing um, uh, securities uh, need to um, be able to present their, themselves and their story um, to make sure that uh, capital is allocated towards them uh, as opposed to away from them. Does that answer the question? I think that uh, that's how I see things just from watching uh, capital flows here. Well, well, that's the idea, Mm -hmm. right? Capital markets are supposed to reflect the expectations of society, or at least. Yeah. And they have more vehicles to do that today than they ever have at any point in time. Fair enough. Fair enough. And and government, you say, you argue, is at the moment uh, ill-prepared for that, that role. (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, again, sitting in the U.S., uh, I would say our government has not been uh, uh, prepared for a lot of things. Um, our uh, our Securities Exchange Commission, some of our regulators have not been as forceful as European or sometimes even Asian regulators in terms of, um, uh, of pushing uh, disclosures uh, from companies or uh, those seeking to raise capital. Um, but that said, uh, it, while there's no de jure requirements, um, you know, investors themselves uh, become the the, the facto deliverer of that message. Uh, you know, uh, what Larry Fink says uh, around potentially 10 to 12% of uh, shares outstanding of many large public companies um, uh, is what uh, is what's going to drive decisions in the boardroom uh, if a regulator or a legislative body is not. It is, it is kind of the debate of our time, isn't it? I mean, and by time, I mean the last couple hundred years, it's sort of the modern time government versus, versus kind of a market. So, then COVID wraps into all this, the momentum of this kind of this catalyst for ESG acceleration and, and societal acceleration. Can you talk about that? <laughs> COVID was um, something that showed how companies uh, dealt with risks effectively. Uh, COVID was probably uh, the ultimate uh, uh, risk that a board uh, or a management team uh, should, in theory, be able to prepare for. And you started to see companies that uh, uh, had prepared effectively and uh, were able to transition their business models over um, some uh, very quickly, uh, some less quickly. Uh, really, the, the focus on um, safety for employees, for, um, for customers, for supply chains. Uh, that first focus on safety, while it existed out there uh, for companies, it now became the, the primary focus in the boardroom starting in March, April, and May, uh, as board members started to reorient themselves to, uh, to how to operate in a COVID world. Um, you know, there's safety is, of course, uh, one of the primary uh, focuses of evaluating a company from a social perspective. Um, that was the start of the process. Then, of course, everything we saw around um, the, uh, the murder of George Floyd, um, the uh, uh, protests in a lot of uh, large uh, cities uh, across, uh, across the country and across the globe, uh, a focus on social issues, a focus on diversity. Uh, while it existed out there, this was simply an accelerant. Um, uh, you know, companies understood um, previously that they needed to uh, uh, to take uh, uh, diversity and inclusion uh, into consideration. Um, many of them got off the sideline uh, and started to act uh, as they saw um, what happened after uh, the murder of George Floyd. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, people I speak to, the corporate secretaries and IR people, um, a lot of them actually, a surprising number, some of them are hep, but, but are, are, are seeing this kind of stuff really almost for the first time. 
um, actually considering it. Because <laughs> uh, again, I hesitate to call it like a phase shift or a paradigm shift, but maybe it's getting through after all these years. You know, ESG risks are um, extra financial risks and uh, eventually can become financial risks. You saw some of those risks become financial risks this year uh, when it came to uh, employee health and safety. Um, but also you, you, you see that as, com- as companies rebuild their supply chains and potentially uh, uh, may have to shorten up uh, supply chains uh, to, uh, to, uh, to maintain access to everything that they need to operate their business. Uh, there are a lot of decisions made this year very quickly. And uh, you know, in general, I think business has been pretty resilient uh, and, and been able to make those moves. But uh, each one of those uh, decisions is uh, taken in the context of uh, we can't operate the same way we did in 2019. Um, we are going to change. And if we're going to change, uh, let's make sure we look at all the externalities that exist out there for our business and make sure we address those externalities effectively. Yeah, it's really changing the way uh, how I or people, you know, kind of do their job. Uh, it if, is. If, if valuation uh, of companies is really changing so dramatically uh, and so quickly, it, it's a sea change. You're, um, 100 years ago, we came up with uh, a definition of what is revenue. Uh, what are assets? What is cash? Uh, and we've built that into financial uh, accounting standards over time. We're just in the infancy of doing that same process um, with non-financial information and uh, all the different uh, reporting frameworks and uh, uh, industry initiatives that are, are doing that uh, are contributing to, uh, hopefully in the end, a, a stronger understanding and, and a way to really put your finger on uh, what all what are all the externalities that don't sit on your financial statements today. Um, how do you measure them? How do you address them and attack them appropriately? Yeah, and in your paper, you look at a bunch of scenarios um, that essentially are premised on this new valuation method. And and one of the scenarios is basically, if I'm reading it right, um, kind of a wholesale repositioning of the investment management industry. Yeah, I I went through, um, we did a separate webinar um, focusing on pieces of this. Uh, I I covered each of the uh, items on um, uh, spotlight on social factors, uh, rise and repositioning of sustainable investing. Uh, Again, each one of those um, that you see on page 39 uh, really step back to different ways that that each investor uh, is trying to operate, each asset manager is trying to operate in a world where they need to offer more of those investment vehicles that uh, include values um, and uh, be able to compete for capital against um, you know, against other investors. Uh, you know, the Larry Fink and, uh, and, and SSGA and other uh, large investors that have been in the sustainable investing market for some time uh, are the primary competition for some of these smaller asset managers that are just starting to roll out their own views of um, how should we evaluate portfolios on sustainability, uh, on social factors, uh, on governance. Um, some of those companies are newer to the game and maybe need to differentiate themselves in some way uh, from the larger uh, legacy providers. Uh, it's really that process that I think has changed the most. Um, you can go to UNPRI's disclosures and take a look at what companies, or sorry, what investors have reported uh, as to their staffs that are involved on um, dedicated ESG investing. Um, just about every investor has increased that staff, some more than doubled the size of those staffs internally uh, because they know they need to do this type of work on ESG integration to fulfill um, what their large institutional clients are looking for 
and to be able to compete with the larger and more established names. Uh, that process and how it's uh, uh, then affected the, the rest of the way into the shareholder base, into not just your top 10 investors, but maybe your top 50 or top 100 investors uh, as a company, uh, is what we're seeing today. Um, many of those uh, smaller investors are just starting to and, uh, and learning how to uh, evaluate companies. And it's a good opportunity for companies to tell their story to those investors as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, um, that is kind of the uh, the section of the market that, that's due for the most shakeup. Uh, I'm speaking with with uh, one fund manager in a week or two who um, uh, they try to differentiate themselves by uh, they 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 listen to to all the uh, the rating agencies, the ESG rating agencies, but they have something in house. But they also have this very sort of active. Uh, engagement style where um, uh, their staff is, is uh, I don't know, quadrupled <laughs> just in the last six months uh, all over the world looking at that. They're almost acting as kind of advisors almost to, uh, to, uh, to boards uh, and, and, and management about, about the kind of risks they, they face that they might not be, have not have considered before. Any public company uh, at this point uh, above a certain size should know, we talked earlier about stakeholders. You should know who your stakeholders are. You should also know what do those stakeholders consider material issues. Um, and then, you know, what do you as a company consider material issues? What's the overlap between those? That materiality exercise is now performed by most large companies. A lot of smaller companies are just starting to do it for the first time. Um, shareholders are one of those stakeholders and probably one of the more important ones, um, given the uh, alignment uh, of interests. Um, shareholders often raise, uh, this is a particular issue that I think you as a management team or a board need to be thinking about and prepared for. Uh, sometimes that uh, information goes right to management, to board, to, to make those decisions. How are we going to prepare for um, uh, cybersecurity, uh, for, uh, for social risks, uh, for uh, diversity, uh, you know, each of those type of things? If it comes from shareholders, um, uh, the, because of the alignment between um, uh, the company and uh, uh, management and, and the shareholder, um, hopefully uh, that's a good place for those risks to be spotted, brought into the company and addressed. Huh. You mentioned a little earlier, Matt. You mentioned, uh, uh, I think you mentioned the, the phrase uh, "required disclosures." Just to kind of wrap up, what do you what do you think of the the effect of the U.S. election, uh, a Biden administration? How's that going to um, change the, the the landscape? Hmm. Boy, hard to tell. Um, the uh, existing SEC, as it stood, um, seemed fairly um, aligned against any type of required disclosures. The one exception, of course, was around human capital, uh, which did uh, make it into uh, rulemaking earlier this year. Uh, I think uh, companies will now start to have to disclose in Form 10K uh, their approach to human capital just on a principles basis. Um, we'll see where things go uh, down the road. Uh, I think if you read that CFTC report, that was published boy, about a month ago or so. Uh, that's the first time we had seen a, a government regulatory agency openly step out and call for things like a price on carbon, um, required disclosures from companies. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's new to the U.S. system, although it's fairly standard across uh, European and sometimes even Asian regulators. 
Um, I think we will see a, a tilt towards uh, maybe being a bit more prescriptive um, as U.S. regulators over time. And sometimes uh, it, some of what uh, those regulators are looking for is sitting in that CFTC report. It is a bit of a roadmap for where we could be headed. Uh, again, companies should be an important part of that. Um, that's uh, Each company should know, again, what its uh, material issues are and what it should be disclosing. Um, companies should be an important piece of coming up with if they're is to be um, any further requirements, either principles-based or rules-based. Um, generally, uh, rulemakers and regulators do that with the input of companies, um, not just directly uh, rolling over them. They should be um, uh, considered and, and uh, included in the decision-making process. And uh, generally, you've seen uh, SEC, CFTC, and others uh, open to that type of dialogue. Well, I'm sure they will be uh, having a lot of that dialogue in, in the very near future. Um, Yep. Brian, Matt, thanks Thanks for joining us on your ticker. Thank you so much, Jeff. And that's your ticker podcast. My thanks to IHS Markets' Brian Matt. And you may have caught wind. S&P Global says it wants to buy IHS Market in a deal worth over $44 billion. To me, like this whole non-financial financial information craze may have some staying power. Still, not sure if shareholders should be deciding not only their own, but everyone else's best interest. As I mentioned at the top, that job should be mine. Thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassette.